Let's pray together. Father, we come to you openly confessing our own sin. Confessing, Lord, that we have not held our faith in you in the way that we should, that we are guilty of grumbling against you in a variety of ways, that we have not trusted you with our lives, that we have not sought to obey you in all things. And yet, Father, you in Christ freely forgive us, that in his blood we find redemption, peace, and freedom. And so, Lord, we praise your name together today. Father, we thank you for our mothers, both our actual physical mothers who have birthed us into the world, and for the spiritual mothers who have invested in us and poured into us and discipled us. Father, you are good, and you give good gifts, and we thank you for the gift of our mothers. Father, we pray for those among us who maybe today is a day that is tinged with sadness because their mother is no longer with us. And Lord, we pray that today that you would bring them peace and comfort, that as they think about their own mother, that it would be a joyful thought, rejoicing in what you provided them and gave them, even if it was only for a time. Father, we pray for those among us who maybe don't have mothers who love them and care for them as they should. Lord, we pray that today that they would find love and grace among the people of God. That, Father, you would do what you have proclaimed in your word and make the church more dear to us than even our own family. Father, we pray that as we come before you in worship through proclamation today, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through your word. That you would open our ears, that you would open our minds, Lord, that you would bring us into humble submission to the scriptures that you have given us as a revelation of yourself. Lord, speak to your people through this time. Use me as an instrument, not of my own abilities, not of my own words, Lord, but of your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is where we will be today. We'll be starting in verse 8. And we're going to go all the way through the end of Exodus 18. Our journey through this book, once again, finds us in the wilderness. Israel is on their way to the mountain where the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And he promised Moses at that time that the sign of his truthfulness would be that Israel would worship him there at that mountain. And so Israel is now on their way. That is where they are headed. 
Next week, we will find them at the mountain. And then that is where they will be for the rest of the book of Exodus. In doing some research this week, I discovered that the, through the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Israel spends 57 chapters at Mount Sinai. 57 chapters. It is very obvious that this is the central focus of what the Lord is intending for us in this book. But along the way, we have seen the Lord give provision to Israel. He provided victory to them and exodus to them as they came out of Egypt, destroying the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He provided worship to them through the song of Moses that we saw in Exodus 15. Last week, we saw the Lord supernaturally provide water, food, rest, and ultimately salvation for his people. Despite their persistent grumbling, their persistent faithlessness, the Lord remained faithful to keep his promises to Israel. And our passage this week has a similar theme with the Lord providing more things that are on full display through this section of the scriptures. And as we walk through this passage together, my hope is that we will recognize that while sometimes the Lord's provision is supernatural, as we saw last week with manna literally falling from heaven and only lasting a day except on Friday when it lasted two days, or we saw water coming out of a rock after Moses struck it, or we saw water being supernaturally sweetened after Moses threw a log in it. We see these supernatural provisions. There are also aspects of his provision that are seemingly natural in their occurrence. And we should not d dismiss those things out of hand because we always need to expect God to work in showy miracles on our behalf. I've had conversations with believers who only see the hand of God in providence when it's something miraculous. They don't see the hand of God in providence when it's something ordinary. And we need to recognize that God works in both ways. He has provided for us in both ways. If we believe that God is sovereign, and we should because he is, then we should rightly recognize our circumstances as instruments of God's providence. So let's look together at Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8, where we will see that the Lord provides help in troubles. Help in troubles. That's our first of our points this morning. Help in troubles. And so, Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, 
So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Israel is still at Rephidim, which is where they were encamped when God, when God had Moses strike the rock after their grumbling, as we saw last week. And while they are there, we are told that Amalek comes and fights with Israel. This is not a provoked attack. Israel has not done something to Amalek. They are not infringing upon their territory. Amalek has apparently seen the situation and decided they're going to go take advantage of it. They see a large group of people without any military training, but they got lots of wealth because they had plundered the Egyptians. They've, they've heard, oh, well, they've got silver and gold and, and fine clothing from the Egyptians, and they've got a bunch of livestock, and they're not an army. So we can go and we can fight them and we can kill them. We can carry off their women and children into captivity. We can keep the livestock for ourselves. We can have all the gold and silver and jewels and all of that for ourselves. And so they decide we're going to go and we're going to attack and we're going to take it. Because Israel has been servants for generations. They're not soldiers. They're not an army. And so Amalek decides they're going to come and they're going to attack. And we need to understand, although our sermon series split chapter 17 between verse 7 and verse 8, we need to understand that in the narrative of the story, these two things coming back to back is not a coincidence. This is intentional. Okay? This is coming right on the heels. If you remember in Exodus 17, 7, they're told, we're told that Israel tested the Lord by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? That's what they did. Is Yahweh among us or not? And so, remember that the Lord, in a manner of speaking, stood upon the rock when Moses struck it. He was struck for his people and brought them salvation despite their sin. But this generation, as a result of this event, was not permitted to enter into the land of promise. They were not allowed to come in. Now, the, bi the biblical narrative tells us that this was ultimately told to them after they refused to go into the promised land. But Psalm 95 tells a different story. Psalm 95 specifically points to the beginning of Exodus 17 and says, because that generation grieved me in the wilderness, I loathed them and I swore that they will not enter my rest. So knowing that, here we are in this narrative, and they, they have now grieved the Lord. He loathes them. He has sworn that they will not enter, their enter, enter into his rest. And so for us as readers, and I know sometimes we're like, we already know the end of this story. But sometimes we need to kind of try to forget the ending, forget that we know the spoilers already, and just try to read it with fresh eyes. Because if you're reading this story for the first time, you would read the events of Exodus 16 and 17 and go, wow, Israel really doesn't have faith in God. Wow, Israel really is disobedient to God. Wow, Israel really is sinful. And now here comes this army. 
And so you're supposed to, as a reader, have this little bit of tension there where you all of a sudden go, oh, is this the Lord bringing judgment? Is this the Lord going to, coming to destroy this top generation of Israel? Is this him bringing judgment upon them for their sinfulness? Or is the Lord going to keep his promises? What is going to win out here? What is going to prevail here? And so Moses appoints Joshua, who is now appearing in Scripture for the first time. This is the Joshua. Okay, this is the one who is going to succeed Moses as the leader of the people of God. That's his role. He is going to be the one who is going to lead them in their military conquest of the promised land. And so this is when we first find Joshua being appointed into this general kind of role. Moses appoints him as the leader of the army and says, you go and essentially institute a draft. Go find men to fight for us. And so Joshua is going through the camp and going, you, come with me. You, come with me. You, come with me. And all of Israel knows what's happening because they see Amalek encamped opposite of them. They know that this battle is coming. And Moses tells him that while they are fighting tomorrow, he is going to go up onto a hill overlooking the battlefield. And he's going to specifically, we're told, he's going to bring the staff of God in his hand. So again, we see the staff being used as kind of this representation of God's power, right? The staff is what Moses used often in the plagues from the very first one where he touched his staff to the water and it all turned into blood. And on and on, he used his staff. His staff is what he used, what he was told to raise into the air that split the Red Sea down the middle then he raised it again to cause it to crash down. So this staff, in and of itself, is nothing, but it is the representation of God's authority and power that he has bestowed upon Moses. And so Moses says, I'm going to go up on the hill and I'm going to take the staff with me. And so, while he's up there, he raises up his hands, and as long as his hands are raised... We're told that Israel prevails in the battle. As long as Moses stands there with the staff in his hand and his hands outstretched, raised up, Israel starts to win. But if he puts his hands down, they start to lose the fight. Now, if any of you have ever done any kind of military training or anything like that, you'll know that they're really fond of making you do things like hold your arms out straight and just hold it for as long as you can. And you know that that is a very painful thing. It's very, it's very uncomfortable over time. And here's Moses, who's supposed to do this all day long. And over time, he starts to get tired. So the first help that we see is that the Lord is giving a people with zero military experience victory in a battle against a people who are intent upon their destruction. As long as Moses' hands are up, they're winning. And they shouldn't be winning. There's no circumstance in which Israel, this nation of servants, should be winning a battle against the Amalekites, who are professional mercenaries, who come in and destroy and take for themselves. This imagery of Moses' hands being raised and Israel prevailing and Moses' hands going down and Israel losing the battle 
is intended to show us that this is truly God's chosen leader and that Israel truly needs him. They truly need him in order to live in the way that God intends for them to live. He has intentionally set Moses apart as the man to lead his people, which is interesting because just in the previous chapter, in the previous part of the narrative, Israel has been grumbling against Moses. You brought us out here to die. You're trying to kill us. You don't care about us. They've been grumbling against Moses. And here, their very survival depends upon the stamina of Moses. And so that's where we see the second help, the more practical help. Aaron and her are men who help Moses in his time of trouble. They recognize, well, if, Mo if Moses can't physically hold his hands up, we're going we're gonna to be destroyed in battle. What can we do? And so they do something very practical. I've known some people who love to kind of hyper-spiritualize everything, and their response in that moment would be to drop to their knees and pray, Lord, Lord, please help Moses' arms to, to, to have strength. Please help Moses to overcome the lactic acid building up in his shoulders. Please help Moses to have endurance, to keep his arms raised. When in reality, the answer is much more simple and much more practical. They find a rock for Moses to sit on, and then each of them say, okay, I'll take this arm, you take that arm, and they just stand there and they hold his arms up. They realize what Moses needs right in that moment is friends to come alongside him and literally hold him up. That's what he needs. And so that's what they do. And so we see two different kinds of help here. We see the supernatural help of the Lord, where if Moses holds his arms up, they're winning the battle. That is a supernatural help from God. But we also see a practical provision here of friends to bear Moses' burden. This is the kind of community that we are instructed to have as Christians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is not just about oh, well, you know, bear somebody's burdens. Well, okay, talk to them about what's going on in their lives. Care about them. No, this is meant both in a spiritual sense, in a figurative sense, and in a literal sense. If I know that one of you is hungry and does not have food, bearing your burdens means I say, hey, let's go grab some lunch. Hey, let me take you to the grocery store. That's what it means to bear one another's burdens but also in a spiritual sense. Sometimes we're way better at the practical sense and we forget about the spiritual sense. Our fighter verse this week reminds us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That is also bearing one another's burdens. When one of us is hurting, we hurt too. When one of us is rejoicing, we rejoice with them. That's what it means to bear one another's burdens. God's people are a community, and that is why we are commanded to gather together and to forsake all other earthly bonds for the sake of joining ourselves to his body. This 
is the most important grouping of people in the life of a Christian. The church. That is how God intended it. That is why Jesus himself said, anyone who would come after me and does not hate his father or his mother or his husband or, or their wife or their children, their son, their daughter, whatever it may be, if they don't, they're not worthy of being my disciple. It's because Christ and his body are the most important connections we have. Thanks to these two helps, the people of Israel prevail in battle. But both of those helps point to the real help, the, prim the primary help that Israel has, is that the Lord is faithful in his promises. There was never any doubt that Israel was going to win the battle. It might have looked like it in the moment, Oh, what if Moses, what if Moses can't, can't hold his arms up? What, what do we do? Well, Moses was always going to be able to hold his arms up because the Lord ordained that. The Lord ordained Aaron and her to hold his arms up because God is faithful to keep his promises. You see the point there? That's the help. That's the real help. That's the help that Israel forgot when they're wandering along and they've gone three days without food and they go, what are we going to do? We're hungry. God brought us out here to die. That's the help they forgot, that God always keeps his promises. This is the thought behind Moses' altar that he names Yahweh is my banner. You see, armies would carry these banners or these flags into battle. and he, They would lift them high, and, the and on the banner they would have the name of their king, or the names of their mighty warriors, and it was intended to strike fear into the heart of the opposing army. So think about Israel in the time when David was running around slaying his tens of thousands. If they march into battle with a banner that says, hey, we got David over here, the other army's going to go, oh, I heard about that guy. Yeah, that, that dude's, that dude's a, he's, he's a, a bad guy. Like, he's, he's a warrior. That kind of freaks me out a little bit. But here Moses is saying, it doesn't matter who you have on your banner. It doesn't matter what king you've got. It doesn't matter what warrior you've got. It doesn't matter what false god you've got. Yahweh is my banner. Yahweh is my banner. He is the one who fights for me. There is no mighty warrior than the man of war named Yahweh which is what Moses said in his song after the Lord destroyed Egypt in the Red Sea. Moses ties this thought of Yahweh being his banner to the Lord's judgment against Amalek for coming against Israel in the wilderness. That the Lord is going to be opposed to them in war forever until they are utterly destroyed. And notice, even now, even now, Moses still has not sinned by striking the rock in anger. That doesn't happen until Numbers chapter 20. But notice here in Exodus 17, the Lord specifies to Moses, make sure you say this in the ears of Joshua. Because even now the Lord knows that Joshua is the one who is going to have to continually go to war against Amalek. You notice that? Again, it's that sovereignty of God. Well before these events take place, God already knows 
Joshua is going to be the one going into the promised land, and Joshua is going to be the one fighting against the Amalekites. It's not going to be you, Moses. He doesn't tell Moses all that just yet. He just says, say this in the ears of Joshua. Setting that stage. The next thing that we see in the beginning of chapter 18 is we see that the Lord provides revelation. Revelation. So let's read chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, and I, your father-in-law, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair... They dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Before I jump in to the text, I want to point something out to you really, really quickly. It doesn't really have to do with the sermon, but it's just something I want you to notice. As you do your own Bible reading, I want you to try to pick up on things like this. So I want to point something out. I think it's really clear in these verses how much affection Moses has for Jethro. And you know how you see that? How many times does he identify Jethro as his father-in-law? Over and over and over again. He could have just written Jethro. It's fewer, words, it's fewer letters, and he's writing all this by hand. He could have just said Jethro this, Jethro that but he repeatedly talks about him in the context of being his father-in-law because he wants the reader to understand Jethro is a part of Moses' family. He has great affection for this man. And this has to do with other fathers-in-law that we have seen in the narrative who have not been good men, who the, the, their, their sons-in-law have not had affection for because they have not been good men. Jethro stands against that. He stands in opposition to that, okay? And I just wanted to point that out to you guys as you're doing your own Bible reading. When you notice certain things, certain phrases, certain words being repeated over and over and over and over again, your first thought should be, why? All right, off of that now. One of the primary motivations of the Exodus, according to God himself, was that all the nations of the world would know that he is the one true God. God himself said this to Moses. God said this to Pharaoh through Moses. 
He was going to do this so that the nations would know. And here, using Moses' family, specifically his father-in-law Jethro, we are told that this message is coming across. At some point after when Moses was going back to Egypt, he had Zipporah and his sons with him. And we all remember, hopefully, the story of the Lord meeting them along the way and seeking to put Moses to death, seemingly because at least one of his sons was not circumcised. And Zipporah, in the middle of the night, recognizes what's going on, and she circumcises her son, and then the angel of the Lord leaves them alone. At some point after that, Zipporah and the sons get sent back to go and live with Jethro. Maybe it's this event, maybe it's a different event that, they re- that makes Moses realize this is a really dangerous environment, and I got a lot to do, so maybe it's best if my wife and kids aren't with me while I'm trying to do all this, while all these things are going on. And so they're sent back. So they've been separated for all this time. And so now they are coming back. Why? Because Jethro has heard about what the Lord has done. He has heard about what the Lord has done in bringing Israel out of Egypt. And so he now gets Sippora, gets the boys, and they go and they find Moses. I said earlier that Jethro, being a good man, stands in contrast. Specifically, it stands in contrast to Laban, who was Jacob's father-in-law. And if you're familiar at all, if you're unfamiliar with that story, Jacob really wanted to marry his daughter Rachel, but Laban tricked him and said, well, you can marry Rachel if you work for me for seven years. So he worked for him for seven years, and then he tricked him and gave him Leah as a wife instead. And Jacob said, what did you do? Oh, and Laban says, oh, well, it's a custom of ours that we have to give the oldest daughter first. But if you work for me for seven more years, I'll give you Rachel. So he says, okay. And he works for him seven more years. And then he's like, all right, well, I'm ready to go now. And Laban says, ah, no, you're not going to go. And when he tries to leave, Laban tries to pursue. He was not a good man. He was a wicked father-in-law. But here's Jethro, who is pursuing Moses for the purpose of bringing his wife, and sons back to him. It's supposed to, we're supposed to recognize this contrast. And the differentiation there is because Jethro seems to now be a man who fears the Lord, whereas Laban was not. And we see this in this passage. We see Jethro essentially throwing his lot in with the people of Israel, with the people of God. We see Jethro rejoicing at what God has done. He's heard about it, but then he sees Moses, and Moses gives him the whole story. And Jethro starts to rejoice at what God has done. And not only that, we see Jethro praising the Lord and even offer sacrifice to God. And he says, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. See right there? That's exactly what the Lord intended. That's exactly what the Lord intended in doing the Exodus, that people would know and believe that he was truly greater than all these so-called gods. And now out of the mouth of Jethro, we have exactly that. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. One of the most incredible things that the Lord has provided to us is the revelation of himself the revelation of himself. That is what 
God has given us. You see, the Lord could have brought the Israelites out of Egypt in such a way that no one knew what happened. Think about it. God can do all things. God could have literally just supernaturally changed the minds of every single person in Egypt so that they all went, yeah, you can go. He could have done that. He could have magically teleported Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. They could have blinked their eyes and opened them up and they were there in the promised land. He could have done that. But he chose to bring them out by bringing these great works, these plagues against Egypt. He chose to bring them out by setting a deliberate trap so that Egypt would pursue and then be destroyed in the Red Sea. He chose to do those things so that his name would be known. He did it so that people like Jethro would see and believe. And what we have, what we have is even better than those who lived through the Exodus. Because we have God himself in Jesus Christ. We, I often hear Christians say things like, if only I could have seen those things with my eyes. If I could have seen those things with my eyes, I could believe more easily. Beloved, you have the Spirit of God in you. You have the fullness of God's revelation in Christ Jesus revealed to you in the pages of his divinely inspired word. You have more revelation of God than even Israel did. You have more revelation of God than they. And if you don't believe me, John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Brothers and sisters, we have Christ we have God in flesh, fully revealed to us, given to us without reservation. Instead of looking for supernatural signs, we should be rejoicing in that the Lord has given us his word that we may know him in his fullness. We know more of God now than Israel did in the wilderness because we have God's word. And what we should do, we should do what Jethro did. Fully embrace the one true God and worship him. The last thing we see this morning in verses 13 through 27 of chapter 18, we see wise counsel. The Lord provides wise counsel. Exodus 18, verse 13, it says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. 
You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them, make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose the able men out of, out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. The final provision we see this morning kind of shows its fruit in this kind of organizational structure. Okay? The Lord has ordained Moses and told Moses that he is to be the leader and the judge and the prophet of all the people. All right? That means he does three main things. First, the people come to him to inquire of God. We, who have the Spirit, we inquire of God directly in the blood of Christ. We have access to the throne room. The people of Israel did not have that. They had to go through an intermediary, such as Moses. And so when they wanted to seek the Lord's will about something, they went to Moses to ask Moses to inquire of the Lord. He's the line of communication between Yahweh and his people. The second thing he does is that he is the final decider of disputes between the people of Israel. Because as anyone who has ever had children knows, people are great at arguing with one another over who has the right to have this thing or that thing. Right? Moms, it's Mother's Day. Am I right? Kids are great at saying, no, that's mine. No, it's mine. And then they come to you and say, Mom, fix it. Dad, fix it. That's essentially what Moses is doing all day long. Finally, he is tasked with teaching the laws and the statutes of God to the people. This is the first and most important role of any man of God, to teach God's word. And Jethro sees him doing this and recognizes that the burden of leadership is going to crush Moses. He says, this is not good that you're doing this. This burden is too heavy for you to bear alone. So he gives Moses wise counsel. He gives him wise counsel and says, you should divide up the labor, particularly in the settled disputes portion of his role, which apparently was taking up the vast majority of his time. And so he tells Moses, you should pick a certain kind of man. You should go throughout all Israel and find certain men, those who fear God, so men who respond in faith to God's word, those who are trustworthy, men who are not going to lie, men who are not going to cheat, and men who hate a bribe. This is especially important because they are not just judging over spiritual matters. They're not just judging over small matters. They're essentially the Israelite small claims court. And so, I mean, we're, we're talking about situations where, let's say, one man's ox wanders over to his neighbor's tent and eats something and dies. 
Well, they're going to say to their neighbor, well, you need to get me a new ox. And he's going to say, well, I'm not getting you an ox. You let your ox wander over here. Well, who's in the right? An ox is expensive. And so they would go to Moses and say, well, well who solved this, Moses? And so a man who does not hate a bribe can be bought. And what you have then is you have those who have more wealth taking advantage of the system to oppress other people. And so men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, and men who hate a bribe. Those might sound familiar to you if you were here when I preached through Titus, because they are all kind of snapshots of the qualifications of an elder. Not a lover of money, you know, being a man of of good reputation among outsiders. All of those things are kind of bound up in these three things. Fear God, trustworthy, hate a bribe. And so he says, take these men and set them over progressively smaller groups of people. And any dispute that they have, they can go to these men and they can settle their disputes. And if it's too hard for this one to settle, well, they can go up a step and up a step and up a step. Kind of the same way our court system works. Well, I don't like your ruling. I'm going to appeal to the next level. And Moses essentially kind of acts as the Supreme Court. It's not a perfect analogy, but it'll help you to kind of understand how this is working. And so Moses is the one who's going to settle any really large, particularly difficult disputes, but everybody else can handle all of the minutia and, and deal with it. Kind of like what I do with my kids when they're arguing about who gets to play with the last magnet tile, and I say, figure it out among yourselves. I'm busy. You can handle it. It's the same kind of concept. This is a good thing. This division of labor is a good thing because the burden of leadership is a very heavy one, especially for Moses, who is leading a nation of, remember, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three million people. And so this division of labor among leadership is something that God ordained very early on. That's why the word of God gives us the concept of a plurality of elders in the New Testament. And that's why we practice it here at Evans Creek. Because no matter how large or how small the group of people is, leadership is still a heavy burden for one man to bear alone. It is good and it is right for us to seek out and listen to wise counsel when the word of God does not give us specific instructions for what we should do. Now, there are certain things where the the word of God does give us instruction for what we should do. There are certain things in which we should just listen to God's word. So, for example, let's take marriage, okay? Let's take marriage. God's word gives us specific guidelines for who we can and cannot marry and who we should and should not marry, okay? So, let's say you decide, well, I kind of want to marry somebody of the same gender. You don't need to go ask your friends. You don't need to go ask other Christians. What do you think about this? God's word has already answered the question for you. No. You may not marry someone of your same gender. End of conversation. But at the same time, God also does not in his word say to you, you are going to marry this person. If you find that in your Bible, you need a new Bible. All right? It does not tell you who you should marry. It gives you guidelines. And so what you should do is you find someone who meets the qualifications and guidelines that God has set out in his word, 
And then you go to other Christians and you say, hey, what do you think about this person? I, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in them. We're thinking about maybe pursuing marriage. You think that'd be a good idea? You think that'd be a bad idea? That's the whole idea behind wise counsel. Where God's word is silent, seek the wisdom of other Christians. That's what, we're sh that's what we should do. That is a provision that God tells us, that he gives us. And, and, and I want to clarify something here. Wise counsel, in the biblical sense, is only something that you find from other Christians. Okay? You're not going to find wise biblical counsel from your best friend who doesn't know the Lord. That, that's not a thing. Now, they might tell you something that is wise. It might be in accordance with Scripture. But that has more to do with, you know, the old adage, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. That does not make them a source of wise counsel. Wise counsel comes from other Christians. Notice that we're first told about how Jethro now believes that Yahweh is the one true God. And then we find him giving wise counsel to Moses. There's a reason that the stories are in that order. Because we're told, yes, Jethro is now throwing his lot in with Yahweh. So his counsel is now acceptable and wise. That's what's happening here. Wise counsel is a wonderful thing that the Lord has provided for us, and we should absolutely avail ourselves of it. Because again, coming back to this week's fighter verse, what were we told? Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. Listen, you might be incredibly brilliant. Some of you are. Some of you are incredibly brilliant. Guess what? You still don't know everything. You still don't know everything. You still don't always make the right decisions. You still don't always know exactly what you should do. God's word tells us that we should seek out a multitude of counselors because in that there is wisdom. So look, church, there's a whole body of believers among us. If you need wise counsel, start asking everybody. Come to the fellowship meal on Sunday nights and be like, hey, everybody, I got a question. I'm trying to figure something out. I need some wise counsel. I'm serious. I know some of you are going, I'm never going to do that. Well, you should. You should. Because it's what the Lord has given to us. Whether the provision of God is supernatural or natural, one thing that we should always remember is that we are utterly dependent upon God for all things. He is, in Christ, our source of life and our hope. And apart from Christ, we are dead and hopeless. But God's ultimate provision is that he has given Christ to us. And we must only place our trust and our hope fully in him. That's where we must find our hope. Because apart from Christ, we are under judgment like the Amalekites, far from God and doomed to destruction. But in him, we have eternal life. And so if we are going to rest in the provisions of God, and we should, we should first find our hope only in Christ. We do not hope in God's provision. If God would have let Israel starve to death in the desert, is he less good? No. If God would have let the Amalekites destroy them, is he less good? No. Don't place your hope in what God will do for you. Place your hope in what Christ has already done. 
he has provided our hope, our life, and our way to God. All of God's provision is intended to point to him, to point to Christ. And so focus your hearts and your minds on that each and every day because that is what his provision is for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for always providing for us, for caring for us, for loving us, for giving us what we need, and for giving us your son. And Lord, we pray today that if there are any here among us who are struggling, that you would grant them peace in Christ. If there are any here today who are hurting, that you would grant them comfort in Christ. And Father, if there are any here today who do not know the Lord, they do not know Jesus, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself and that they would be saved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.